Chapter Five of Twenty Years at Hull House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Twenty Years at Hull House by Jane Addams. Chapter Five. First Days at Hull House. The next January found Miss Starr and myself in Chicago, searching for a neighborhood in which we might put our plans into execution. In our eagerness to win friends for the new undertaking, we utilized every opportunity to set forth the meaning of the settlement as it had been embodied at Toynbee Hall, although in those days we made no appeal for money, meaning to start with our own slender resources. From the very first the plan received courteous attention and the discussion, while often sceptical, was always friendly. Professor Swing wrote a commendatory column in the evening journal, and our early speeches were reported quite out of proportion to their worth. I recall a spirited evening at the home of Mrs. Wilmarth, which was attended by that renowned scholar Thomas Davidson, and by a young Englishman who was a member of the then-new Fabian Society, and to whom a peculiar glamour was attached, because he had scoured knives all summer in a camp of high-minded philosophers in the Adirondacks. Our new little plan met with criticism, not to say disapproval, from Mr. Davidson, who, as nearly as I can remember, called it one of those unnatural attempts to understand life through cooperative living. It was in vain we asserted that the collective living was not an essential part of the plan, that we would always scrupulously pay our own expenses, and that at any moment we might decide to scatter through the neighbourhood and to live in separate tenements. He still contended that the fascination for most of those volunteering residents would lie in the collective living aspect of the settlement. His contention was, of course, essentially sound. There is a constant tendency for the residents to lose themselves in the cave of their own companionship, as the Toynbee Hall phrase goes, but on the other hand, it is doubtless true that the very companionship, the give and take of colleagues, is what tends to keep the settlement normal and in touch with the world of things as they are. I am happy to say that we never resented this nor any other difference of opinion, and that fifteen years later, Professor Davidson handsomely acknowledged that the advantages of a group far outweighed the weaknesses he had early pointed out. He was, at that later moment, sharing with a group of young men on the east side of New York his ripest conclusions in philosophy, and was much touched by their intelligent interest and absorbed devotion. I think that time has also justified our early contention that the mere foothold of a house easily accessible, ample in space, hospitable and tolerant in spirit, situated in the midst of the large foreign colonies which so easily isolate themselves in American cities, would be in itself a serviceable thing for Chicago. I am not so sure that we succeeded in our endeavors to make social intercourse express the growing sense of the economic unity of society, and to add the social function to democracy but Hull House was soberly opened on the theory that the dependence of classes on each other is reciprocal, and that, as the social relation is essentially a reciprocal relation, it gives a form of expression that has peculiar value. In our search for a vicinity in which to settle, we went about with the officers of the compulsory education department, with city missionaries, and with the newspaper reporters, whom I recall as a much older set of men than one ordinarily associates with that profession, or perhaps I was only sent out with the older ones on what they must all have considered a quixotic mission. 
one Sunday afternoon in the late winter, a reporter took me to visit a so-called anarchist Sunday school, several of which were to be found on the northwest side of the city. The young man in charge was of the German student type, and his face flushed with enthusiasm as he led the children singing one of Körner's poems. The newspaper man, who did not understand German, asked me what abominable stuff they were singing, but he seemed dissatisfied with my translation of the simple words, and darkly intimated that they were deep ones, and had probably fooled me. When I replied that Körner was an ardent German poet, whose songs inspired his countrymen to resist the aggressions of Napoleon, and that his bound poems were found in the most respectable libraries, he looked at me rather askance, and I then and there had my first intimation that to treat a Chicago man, who was called an anarchist, as you would treat any other citizen, is to lay yourself open to deep suspicion. Another Sunday afternoon in the early spring, on the way to a Bohemian mission in the carriage of one of its founders, we passed a fine old house standing well back from the street, surrounded on three sides by a broad piazza, which was supported by wooden pillars of exceptionally pure Corinthian design and proportion. I was so attracted by the house that I set forth to visit it the very next day, but though I searched for it then and for several days after, I could not find it, and at length I most reluctantly gave up the search. Three weeks later, with the advice of several of the oldest residents of Chicago, including the ex-mayor of the city, Colonel Mason, who had from the first been a warm friend to our plans, we decided upon a location somewhere near the junction of Blue Island Avenue, Halsted Street, and Harrison Street. I was surprised and overjoyed on the very first day of our search for quarters to come upon the hospitable old house, the quest for which I had so recently abandoned. The house was, of course, rented, the lower part of it used for offices and storerooms, in connection with a factory that stood back of it. However, after some difficulties were overcome, it proved to be possible to sublet the second floor, and what had been a large drawing-room on the first floor. The house had passed through many changes since it had been built in 1856 for the homestead of one of Chicago's pioneer citizens, Mr. Charles J. Hull, and though battered by its vicissitudes, was essentially sound. Before it had been occupied by the factory, it had sheltered a second-hand furniture store, and at one time the Little Sisters of the Poor had used it for a home for the aged. It had a half-sceptical reputation for a haunted attic, so far respected by the tenants living on the second floor that they always kept a large pitcher full of water on the attic stairs. Their explanation of this custom was so incoherent that I was sure it was a survival of the beliefs that a ghost could not cross running water but perhaps that interpretation was only my eagerness for finding folklore. The fine old house responded kindly to repairs, its wide hall and open fireplace always ensuring it a gracious aspect. Its generous owner, Miss Helen Culver, in the following spring gave us a free leasehold of the entire house. Her kindness has continued through the years, until the group of thirteen buildings, which at present comprises our equipment, is built largely upon land which Miss Culver has put at the service of the settlement, which bears Mr. Hull's name. In those days the house stood between an undertaking establishment and a saloon. Night, death, and the devil, the three were called by a Chicago wit, and yet any mock heroics which might be implied by the comparing of a settlement to a night quickly dropped away under the genuine kindness and hearty welcome extended to us by the families living up and down the street. We furnished the house as we would have furnished it were it in another part of the city, with the photographs and other impedimenta we had collected in Europe, and with a few bits of family mahogany. 
while all the new furniture which was bought was enduring in quality we were careful to keep it in character with the fine old residence probably no young matron ever placed her own things in her own house with more pleasure than that with which we first furnished hull house we believed that the settlement may logically bring to its aid all those adjuncts which the cultivated man regards as good and suggestive of the best of the life of the past on the eighteenth of september eighteen eighty nine miss starr and i moved into it with Miss Mary Kaiser, who began performing the housework, but who quickly developed into a very important factor in the life of the vicinity, as well as that of the household, and whose death five years later was most sincerely mourned by hundreds of our neighbors. In our enthusiasm over settling, the first night we forgot not only to lock but to close a side door opening on Polk Street, and we were much pleased in the morning to find that we possessed a fine illustration of the honesty and kindliness of our new neighbors. Our first guest was an interesting young woman who lived in a neighboring tenement, whose widowed mother aided her in the support of the family by scrubbing a downtown theatre every night. The mother, of English birth, was well-bred and carefully educated, but was in the midst of that bitter struggle which awaits so many strangers in American cities, who find that their social position tends to be measured solely by the standards of living they are able to maintain. Our guest has long since married the struggling young lawyer to whom she was then engaged, and he is now leading his profession in an eastern city. She recalls that month's experience always with a sense of amusement over the fact that the succession of visitors who came to see the new settlement invariably questioned her most minutely concerning these people, without once suspecting that they were talking to one who had been identified with the neighborhood from childhood. I at least was able to draw a lesson from the incident, and I never addressed a Chicago audience on the subject of the settlement in its vicinity without inviting a neighbor to go with me, that I might curb any hasty generalization by the consciousness that I had an auditor who knew the conditions more intimately than I could hope to do. Halstead Street has grown so familiar during twenty years of residence that it is difficult to recall its gradual changes, the withdrawal of the more prosperous Irish and Germans, and the slow substitution of Russian Jews, Italians, and Greeks. A description of the street such as I gave in those early addresses still stands in my mind as sympathetic and correct. Halstead Street is thirty-two miles long, and one of the great thoroughfares of Chicago. Polk Street crosses it midway between the stockyards to the south and the shipbuilding yards on the north branch of the Chicago River. For the six miles between these two industries, the street is lined with shops of butchers and grocers, with dingy and gorgeous saloons, and pretentious establishments for the sale of ready-made clothing. Polk Street, running west from Halstead Street, grows rapidly more prosperous. Running a mile east to State Street, it grows steadily worse, and crosses a network of vice on the corners of Clark Street and Fifth Avenue. Hull House once stood in the suburbs, but the city has steadily grown up around it, and its site now has corners on three or four foreign colonies. Between Halstead Street and the river live about ten thousand Italians, Neapolitans, Sicilians, and Calabrians, with an occasional Lombard or Venetian. To the south, on Twelfth Street, are many Germans, and side streets are given over almost entirely to Polish and Russian Jews. Still farther south, these Jewish colonies merge into a huge Bohemian colony, so vast that Chicago ranks as the third Bohemian city in the world. To the northwest are many Canadian French, clannish in spite of their long residence in America, and to the north are Irish and first-generation Americans. On the streets directly west and farther north are well-to-do English-speaking families, many of whom own their own houses and have lived in the neighborhood for years. One man is still living in his old farmhouse. 
The policy of the public authorities of never taking an initiative, and always waiting to be urged to do their duty, is obviously fatal in a neighbourhood where there is little initiative among the citizens. The idea underlying our self-government breaks down in such a ward. The streets are inexpressibly dirty, the number of schools inadequate, sanitary legislation unenforced, the street lighting bad, the paving miserable and altogether lacking in the alleys and smaller streets, and the stables foul beyond description. Hundreds of houses are unconnected with the street sewer. The older and richer inhabitants seem anxious to move away as rapidly as they can afford it. They make room for newly arrived immigrants who are densely ignorant of civic duties. This substitution of the older inhabitants is accomplished industrially also, in the south and east quarters of the ward. The Jews and Italians do the finishing for the great clothing manufacturers, formerly done by Americans, Irish, and Germans, who refuse to submit to the extremely low prices to which the sweating system has reduced their successors. As the design of the sweating system is the elimination of rent from the manufacture of clothing, the outside work is begun after the clothing leaves the cutter. An unscrupulous contractor regards no basement as too dark, no stable-loft too foul, no rear shanty too provisional, no tenement room too small for his workroom, as these conditions imply low rental. Hence these shops abound in the worst of the foreign districts where the sweater easily finds his cheap basement and his home finishers. The houses of the ward, for the most part wooden, were originally built for one family and are now occupied by several. They are after the type of the inconvenient frame cottages found in the poor suburbs twenty years ago. Many of them were built where they now stand, others were brought thither on rollers, because their previous sites had been taken by factories. The fewer brick tenement buildings, which are three or four stories high, are comparatively new, and there are few large tenements. The little wooden houses have a temporary aspect, and for this reason, perhaps, the tenement-house legislation in Chicago is totally inadequate. Rear tenements flourish. Many houses have no water supply save the faucet in the back yard. There are no fire escapes. The garbage and ashes are placed in wooden boxes, which are fastened to the street pavements. One of the most discouraging features about the present system of tenement houses is that many are owned by sordid and ignorant immigrants. The theory that wealth brings responsibility, that possession entails at length education and refinement, in these cases fails utterly. The children of an Italian immigrant owner may shine shoes in the street, and his wife may pick rags from the street gutter, laboriously sorting them in a dingy court. Wealth may do something for her self-complacency and feeling of consequence, it certainly does nothing for her comfort or her children's improvement, nor for the cleanliness of any one concerned. Another thing that prevents better houses in Chicago is the tentative attitude of the real estate men. Many unsavory conditions are allowed to continue which would be regarded with horror if they were considered permanent. Meanwhile, the wretched conditions persist until at least two generations of children have been born and reared in them. In every neighborhood where poor people live, because rents are supposed to be cheaper there, is an element which, although uncertain in the individual, in the aggregate can be counted upon. It is composed of people of former education and opportunity who have cherished ambitions and prospects, but who are caricatures of what they meant to be, hollow ghosts which blame the living men. There are times in many lives where there is a cessation of energy and loss of power. Men and women of education and refinement come to live in a cheaper neighborhood because they lack the ability to make money, because of ill-health, because of an unfortunate marriage, or for other reasons which do not imply criminality or stupidity. 
among them are those who, in spite of untoward circumstances, keep up some sort of an intellectual life, those who are great for books, as their neighbours say. To such the settlement may be a genuine refuge. In the very first weeks of our residence, Miss Starr started a reading-party in George Eliot's Romola, which was attended by a group of young women who followed the wonderful tale with unflagging interest. The weekly reading was held in our little upstairs dining-room, and two members of the club came to dinner each week, not only that they might be received as guests, but that they might help us wash the dishes afterwards, and so make the table ready for the stacks of Florentine photographs. Our first resident, as she gaily designated herself, was a charming old lady who gave five consecutive readings from Hawthorne to a most appreciative audience, interspersing the magic tales most delightfully with recollections of the elusive and fascinating author. Years before she had lived at Brook Farm as a pupil of the Ripley's, and she came to us for ten days because she wished to live once more in an atmosphere where idealism ran high. We thus early found the type of class which through all the years has remained most popular, a combination of a social atmosphere with serious study. Volunteers to the new undertaking came quickly. A charming young girl conducted a kindergarten in the drawing-room, coming regularly every morning from her home in a distant part of the north side of the city. Although a tablet to her memory has stood upon a mantel-shelf in Hull House for five years, we still associate her most vividly with the play of little children, first in her kindergarten, and then in her own nursery, which furnished a veritable illustration of Victor Hugo's definition of heaven, a place where parents are always young and children always little. Her daily presence for the first two years made it quite impossible for us to become too solemn and self-conscious in our strenuous routine, for her mirth and buoyancy were irresistible, and her eager desire to share the life of the neighbourhood never failed, although it was often put to a severe test. One day at luncheon she gaily recited her futile attempt to impress temperance principles upon the mind of an Italian mother, to whom she had returned a small daughter of five sent to the kindergarten, in quite a horrid state of intoxication, from the wine-soaked bread upon which she had breakfasted. The mother, with the gentle courtesy of a South Italian, listened politely to her graphic portrayal of the untimely end awaited so immature a wine-bibber, but long before the lecture was finished, quite unconscious of the incongruity, she hospitably set forth her best wines, and when her baffled guest refused one after the other, she disappeared, only to quickly return with a small dark glass of whisky, saying reassuringly, "'See, I have brought you the true American drink.' The recital ended in serio-comic despair, with the rueful statement that, the impression I probably made on her darkened mind was, that it was the American custom to breakfast children on bread soaked in whisky instead of light Italian wine. That first kindergarten was a constant source of education to us. We were much surprised to find social distinctions even among its lambs, although greatly amused with the neat formulation made by the superior little Italian boy who refused to sit beside uncouth little Angelina because we eat our macaroni this way, imitating the movement of a fork from a plate to his mouth, and she eat her macaroni this way, holding his hand high in the air and throwing back his head that his wide-open mouth might receive an imaginary cascade. Angelina gravely nodded her little head in approval of this distinction between gentry and peasant. "'But isn't it astonishing that merely table manners are made such a test all the way along?' was the comment of their democratic teacher. Another memory which refuses to be associated with death, which came to her all too soon, is that of the young girl who organized our first really successful club of boys, 
holding their fascinated interest by the old chivalric tales, set forth so dramatically and vividly that checkers and jackstraws were abandoned by all the other clubs on boys' day, that their members might form a listening fringe to the young heroes. I met a member of the latter club one day as he flung himself out of the house in the rage by which an emotional boy hopes to keep from shedding tears. There is no use coming here any more. Prince Roland is dead, he gruffly explained as we passed. We encouraged the younger boys in tournaments and dramatics of all sorts, and we somewhat fatuously believed that boys who were early interested in adventurers or explorers might later want to know the lives of living statesmen and inventors. It is needless to add that the boys quickly responded to such a programme, and that the only difficulty lay in finding leaders who were able to carry it out. This difficulty has been with us through all the years of growth and development in boys' clubs, until now, with its five-story building, its splendid equipment of shops, of recreation and study-rooms, that group alone is successful which commands the services of a resourceful and devoted leader. The dozens of younger children who from the first came to Hull House were organized into groups which were not quite classes and not quite clubs. The value of these groups consisted almost entirely in arousing a higher imagination and giving the children the opportunity which they could not have had in the crowded schools, for initiative and for independent social relationships. The public schools then contained little handwork of any sort, so that naturally any instruction which we provided for the children took the direction of this supplementary work. But it required a constant effort that the pressure of poverty itself should not defeat the educational aim. The Italian girls in the sewing classes would count the day lost when they could not carry home a garment, and the insistence that it should be neatly made seemed a super-refinement to those in dire need of clothing. As these clubs have been continued during the twenty years, they have developed classes in the many forms of handicraft which the newer education is so rapidly adapting for the delight of children, but they still keep their essentially social character, and still minister to that large number of children who leave school the very week they are fourteen years old, only too eager to close the schoolroom door forever on a tiresome task that is at last well over. It seems to us important that these children shall find themselves permanently attached to a house that offers them evening clubs and classes with their old companions, that merges as easily as possible the school life into the working life, and does what it can to find places for the bewildered young things looking for work. A large proportion of the delinquent boys brought into the juvenile court in Chicago are the oldest sons in large families, whose wages are needed at home. The grades from which many of them leave school, as the records show, are piteously far from the seventh and eighth, where the very first introduction in manual training is given, nor have they been caught by any other abiding interest. In spite of these flourishing clubs for children early established at Hull House, and the fact that our first organized undertaking was a kindergarten, we were very insistent that the settlement should not be primarily for the children, and that it was absurd to suppose that grown people would not respond to opportunities for education and social life. Our enthusiastic kindergartner herself demonstrated this with an old woman of ninety, who, because she was left alone all day while her daughter cooked in a restaurant, had formed such a persistent habit of picking the plaster off the walls, that one landlord after another refused to have her for a tenant. It required but a few weeks' time to teach her to make large paper chains, and gradually she was content to do it all day long, and in the end to quite as much pleasure in adorning the walls as she had formerly taken in demolishing them. Fortunately, the landlord had never heard the aesthetic principle that exposure of basic construction is more desirable than gaudy decoration. In course of time it was discovered that the old woman could speak Gaelic, and when one or two grave professors came to see her, the neighborhood was filled with pride that such a wonder lived in their midst. 
to mitigate life for a woman of ninety was an unfailing refutation of the statement that the settlement was designed for the young on our first new year's day at hull house we invited the older people in the vicinity sending a carriage for the most feeble and announcing to all of them that we were going to organize an old settlers party every new year's day since Older people in varying numbers have come together at Hull House to relate early hardships, and to take for the moment the place in the community to which their pioneer life entitles them. Many people who are formerly residents of the vicinity, but whom prosperity has carried into more desirable neighborhoods, come back to these meetings, and often confess to each other that they have never since found such kindness as in early Chicago, when all its citizens came together in mutual enterprises. Many of these pioneers, so like the men and women of my earliest childhood that I always felt comforted by their presence in the house, were very much opposed to foreigners, whom they held responsible for a deprecation of property and a general lowering of the tone of the neighborhood. Sometimes we had a chance for companionship. I recall one old man, fiercely American, who had reproached me because we had so many foreign views on our walls, to whom I endeavoured to set forth our hope that the pictures might afford a familiar island to the immigrants in a sea of new and strange impressions. The old settler guest, taken off his guard, replied, "'I see. They feel as we did when we saw a Yankee notion from down east,' thereby formulating the dim kinship between the pioneer and the immigrant, both buffeting the waves of a new development. The older settlers as well as their children throughout the years have given genuine help to our various enterprises for neighborhood improvement, and from their own memories of early hardships have made many shrewd suggestions for alleviating the difficulties of that first sharp struggle with untoward conditions. In those early days we were often asked why we had come to live on Halstead Street when we could afford to live somewhere else. I remember one man who used to shake his head and say it was the strangest thing he had met in his experience but who was finally convinced that it was not strange, but natural. In time it came to seem natural to all of us that the settlement should be there. If it is natural to feed the hungry and care for the sick, it is certainly natural to give pleasure to the young, comfort to the aged, and to minister to the deep-seated craving for social intercourse that all men feel. Whoever does it is rewarded by something which, if not gratitude, is at least spontaneous and vital, and lacks that irksome sense of obligation with which a substantial benefit is all too often acknowledged. In addition to the neighbors who responded to the receptions and classes, we found those who were too battered and oppressed to care for them. To these, however, was left that susceptibility to the bare offices of humanity which raises such offices into a bond of fellowship. From the first it seemed understood that we were ready to perform the humblest neighborhood services, we were asked to wash the newborn babies, and to prepare the dead for burial, to nurse the sick, and to mind the children. Occasionally these neighborly offices unexpectedly uncovered ugly human traits. For six weeks after an operation we kept in one of our three bedrooms a forlorn little baby, who, because he was born with a cleft palate, was most unwelcome even to his mother, and we were horrified when he died of neglect a week after he was returned to his home. A little Italian bride of fifteen sought shelter with us one November evening to escape her husband who had beaten her every night for a week when he returned home from work, because she had lost her wedding-ring. Two of us officiated quite alone at the birth of an illegitimate child because the doctor was late in arriving, and none of the honest Irish matrons would touch the likes of her. We ministered at the deathbed of a young man who, during a long illness of tuberculosis, had received so many bottles of whiskey through the mistaken kindness of his friends that the cumulative effect produced wild periods of exultation, in one of which he died. 
We were all so early impressed with the curious isolation of many of the immigrants. An Italian woman once expressed her pleasure in the red roses that she saw at one of our receptions, in surprise that they had been brought so fresh all the way from Italy. She would not believe for an instant that they had been grown in America. She said that she had lived in Chicago for six years, and had never seen any roses, whereas in Italy she had seen them every summer in great profusion. During all that time, of course, the woman had lived within ten blocks of a florist's window. She had not been more than a five-cent car ride away from the public parks, but she had never dreamed of faring forth for herself, and no one had taken her. Her conception of America had been the untidy street in which she lived, and had made her long struggle to adapt herself to American ways. But in spite of some untoward experiences, we were constantly impressed with the uniform kindness and courtesy we received. Perhaps these first days lay the simple human foundations, which are certainly essential for continuous living among the poor. First, genuine preference for residence in an industrial quarter to any other part of the city, because it is interesting and makes the human appeal. Then the second, the conviction in the words of Canon Barnett, that the things that make men alike are finer and better than the things that keep them apart, and that these basic likenesses, if they are properly accentuated, easily transcend the less essential differences of race, language, creed, and tradition. Perhaps even in those first days we made a beginning toward that object which was afterwards stated in our charter, to provide a centre for higher civic and social life, to institute and maintain educational and philanthropic enterprises, and to investigate and improve the conditions in the industrial districts of Chicago. End of chapter 5